This is the Bartender Journey Podcast. Hey, it's Bartender Journey Podcast number 134. My name's Brian Vincent Weber. Thanks for listening. Today we're going to talk all about Mescal with Misty Colcoffin. She's from, uh, she's brand ambassador for Del Megway uh, Mescal. And uh, we'll mix up a Mescal cocktail too before we get to the interview. And we'll do our book of the week. We'll have our toast at the very end of the show. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Well, before we get to Mescal, uh, let's do our book of the week. And uh, it's called To Have and to have another, A Hemingway Cocktail Companion by Philip Green. And uh, this is a great book, uh, interesting uh, perspectives on Hemingway, and uh, there's a lot of history in there, but and a lot of recipes too, uh, Hemingway recipes, of course, and uh, you'll enjoy that book. It's uh, There's an updated or revised version coming out uh, as I record this next week. It comes out on November 2nd, I believe it is, and uh, that's this is 2015, if you're uh, wondering. And uh, so, uh, yeah, check out this book, To Have and To Have Another, A Hemingway Cocktail Companion by Philip Green. And uh, if you go to bartenderjourney.net, you'll see a link to that. The Amazon link will bring you, click you through to Amazon, and uh, that'll help support the show a little bit. Anything you buy after clicking through one of those Amazon links on bartenderjourney.net will uh, help out the show. If you buy this book or a different book, or uh, if you buy yourself a pair of socks, it'll uh, help out the show, and I'd appreciate it. Just uh, make sure you go to bartenderjourney.net first and click on that and any of the Amazon links. And uh, but you, you know. Check out this book, To Have and To Have Another. All right, we're going to talk to Misty all about mezcal in just a minute. Uh, first, let's mix up a mezcal cocktail. This cocktail was on the Del Megway uh, website, and uh, it's called the Valentina, and it's by Lucas Paya, and uh, I don't know the man, but uh, he has a great website. It's called bonsavant.com, and he's out of L.A., and uh, I adapted it slightly. We have uh, Del Megway. I use their Monero. We'll have two ounces of that. We'll have one ounce of broiled orange juice. I took I took my orange, cut it in half, sprinkled it with uh, a little sugar, put it under the broiler for a bit until it crystallized, and then juiced that. And uh, that was that's delicious. Lucas suggested blood orange juice, uh, which I didn't have any of on hand. I didn't have any blood oranges, so I took a your standard orange and uh, grilled it or or broiled it rather, and uh, I like that because uh, mezcal is so smoky. And I said, figured, figured let's uh, let's add some more f- fiery uh, ingredients to the mix here. So that was one ounce of the orange juice. I used the broiled, uh, half an ounce of freshly squeezed lime juice, and three quarters of an ounce uh, agave syrup. So we're gonna make uh, just like simple syrup: half agave, half uh, hot water. Mix that up. Next, we're gonna add one quarter ounce Campari three dashes of Regan's orange bitters, and he suggests a Luxardo cherry soaked in mezcal, which sounds delicious. I didn't have, uh, I don't have Luxardo cherries today, but I have some delicious Jack Rudy um, maraschino cherries, and uh, I let that soak in the mezcal uh, a little bit before I made this drink. So that's going to be our garnish, and uh, we'll do an orange wheel as well for garnish. So we'll shake that all up with ice and pour it over fresh ice in a in an old-fashioned glass. Lucas has a great note here on his recipe. He says, for good measure, a copita of Del Megue should be served on the side. I like that. A copita, as Misty's going to tell us, is a uh, little clay, uh, very small clay um glass. Uh, it looks more like a bowl, and uh, that's the traditional way of drinking mezcal. Neat, of course. All right, let's get right to that great interview with Misty, talking all about mezcal today. And don't forget to stay tuned to the very end of the podcast for our toast. Hello? 
Hello. Hey, Misty. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? What happened that first time? Yeah, uh, we had a call failure. It happens. <laughs> how are you? I'm good, how are you? Fine, thank you. Thanks for uh, joining me today. Of course, of course. Nice to see you again. We met We met briefly at uh, Tales this year at Canaan yeah. Table. I made us a little welcome cocktail. So oh, cheers. Nice. What <laughs> Here's yours. <laughs> So I made the Valentina from the Del Megway website. Oh, nice. Yeah. I'm just going to sip a little chichicapa. There you go. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, mezcal cocktails are um, really interesting, I always say, because the, the spirit really shows through. You know, I think it's um, the, within the, because of the diversity within the category, um, you know, you can have two different mezcals make the exact same cocktail and have two different experiences right. because the spirit-based spirit itself can be so different from one another. So um, it's always fun to play around with, you know, in the past, especially for competitions and things like that, I'll create a cocktail and then make it with five, six, seven different mezcals. And I'm always surprised by just how different they each are. So That's so much fun, isn't it, to make make something and just vary one ingredient. I love doing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's your title with uh, Del Megway? It's uh, brand ambassador, I, or um, I, I'm the well, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of in flux a little bit. Yeah. Um, my original title was um, East Coast Juez. The Juez is the judge or the person who's responsible for keeping a, um, a copita full during festivals, ah. um, and so kind of bringing the tradition of Oaxaca back um, to the states a little bit. Um, I've it's. My role has grown quite a bit in the last year, last year and a half. Um, so now I'm managing our special release program. Um, so I'm the director of the Vino de Mezcals. Um, so our Vino de Mezcal series features um, mezcals that um, are being made from wild-growing agaves, things that we don't make as much of, and we don't have, you know, it, it's not like our core lineup, maybe right. Mespedin, that we have, you know, we can forecast and plan for a little bit better. Um, so I direct that program, kind of decide when and what is coming in and where it goes nice. in the U.S. Oh, okay. So and are people you... either love or hate me, depending on the situation. <laughs> if you can't get them what they're, they're looking for, huh? Exactly. <laughs> and are you uh, still behind the bar regular on a regular basis or not? No, no. I've, I'm traveling so much with Delma Gay, which is great, uh, but I definitely miss bartending. So. Um, when I have an opportunity for my events, I love to get behind the bar as much as possible. I'll be behind the bar, drink for a few hours uh, for Dia de los Muertos in a couple of weeks. So I'm looking forward to that. But um, I don't have regular shifts anywhere. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you uh, you were behind the bar for quite a while, huh? Well, yeah, almost 20 years. Yeah. Nice. So. <laughs> I'm just going to... I've served my time. Excuse me one second. Or I've got a cat and a dog uh, about to go at it over here. So I've got to let one uh -oh. of them out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> so, um, mezcal is such an interesting and kind of misunderstood spirit, don't you think? Or not misunderstood, but under, uh, under, there's a lack of education, I would say. Yeah, there's definitely a lack of education. And I think in a lot of ways, misunderstood is actually very appropriate. Um, you know, if you consider 
Delma Gay, we're celebrating our 20th anniversary right now, which is really amazing when you think about it, because the majority of the people that you talk to about Mezcal had no idea what Mezcal was, knew nothing about the category even five years ago. Um, and so if you consider the first 15 years of heavy lifting that Ron Cooper did yeah. to help introduce people to the category, um, you know, uh, that's that's quite an accomplishment on his part. Um, and when Delma Gay was founded in 1995, the only other Mezcal that was available in the U.S. was Monte Alban, which the difference between what Monte Alban is, which is more on the industrial side of of, of the mezcal category, and what the producers of Del Maguey do, it's like comparing apples and oranges. So, so many of the people that I encounter, their only experience has been on that industrial side, which really has nothing to do with the traditional practices of making mezcal. Um, and so, it really is, you know, a, a, a miseducation. A lot of ways, we're trying to get those preconceived notions of what mezcal is out of somebody's mind so that they can really think about what mezcal truly is as a category. Um, and I mean, that's an uphill battle. I believe it. <laughs> you know, I believe it. You know, it always starts with, oh, that's the one with the worm in the right, bottle, exactly. right? And then you're like, okay, at least I know exactly where I'm starting <laughs> yeah. and how far I have to go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but is it is it accurate to say that tequila is a subset of mezcal or not really? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. If you look at, I, I always like to think of the word mezcal in two ways. There's small M mezcal and there's big M mezcal. And small M mezcal comes from an Awat word that means cooked agave. So the language of the Aztecs, and it goes back, if you think about it in that way, people have been making mezcal from cooked agave for hundreds of years in 26 of the 31 states of Mexico. Um, and one of those is tequila. So it's kind of like considering brandy versus cognac, right. you know? Um uh, brandy, you know, all cognac is a brandy, right. but not all brandy is a cognac. And it's the same way when you think about tequila and mezcal. And then when you consider mezcal as the big M mezcal, that's when you're considering the denomination of origin. So you have mezcal as one of four denominations of origin in Mexico that are associated with an, a distilled alcohol, alcohol, you know, spirit. Um, and so then you have the big M mezcal, which can be made um, specifically in eight states at this point in time. That's probably going to open up to include other states as we move along in the years. Oh, is that right? Um, so there's those two different nuances of what the word mezcal is. In the oldest sense, definitely tequila is a mezcal. But the taste profile is so different when, when you, you oh, know, from this to a, to a tequila. That's production process. Well, there's a few different things involved. Production process, definitely. Um, and tequila, um, the way that they're processing or cooking the piñas in order to be able to ferment and then distill. Um, and, and they're trying to have that process not impart flavor. We're completely the opposite. By roasting in the earth over stones that have been heated by a hardwood fire, you can't help but add um, the flavors of that hardwood fire mm. and those oils from the, from the wood that have been transferred to the stones and now that smoke and everything that's involved in that earthen roast you can't help if you're doing it right. You can't help but have some sort of flavor imparted. Um, so that's one process, one aspect of imparting flavor and where that flavor differentiation comes from. But also the types of agave. Tequila can only be made from one type of agave. Mm. Tequila and a Weber Azul. Mm -hmm. We can use thirty different types of agave to make mezcal. Right. So we could take a bottle like Chichicapa that's all made from one hundred percent espadine, and that's going to have a particular flavor profile. Or this producer could take. 
four or five different types of agave and blend them together, you know, to make what some people are calling ensembles, you know, but a blend of agaves. Um, and that, of course, would have a different flavor profile as well. So that's another aspect. Mm-hmm. But then the third that is extremely important is that mezcal it, like fine wine exhibits terroir. Right. Um, so the location where a specific spirit is made, the the wood that is chosen to make to be used in the roast, the type of water, uh, the source of the water, um, but more uh, the choice of agave that's been used, the earth, um, the soil that that agave has been in for you know anywhere from seven to thirty years, depending upon the type of agave. Um, but and then most importantly, the open air mi- the microbes in that particular region. Um, because if you're fermenting open and not adding any sorts of um, uh, inoculation of any sort or for, um, yeast of any sort, it's those microbes that are occurring in the air that are starting your fermentation process. Is that how most mescals made, or, um, or, uh, or you can't really generalize? Yeah, that? traditionally that you can't generalize anymore because as the category is growing, there's this push to try and make more mezcal faster. And one yeah. of the ways that you can make that mezcal faster is by inoculating and then your fermentation happens faster as opposed to up to three weeks if you're doing it naturally. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, having those open air microbes starting your fermentation, you could take any producer and take them to another location and most likely those microbes are going to be different and the results of the flavors of the mezcal are going to be different. Mm. So there's that third aspect. And then the fourth aspect is the human aspect, you know, because it's such an artisanal process for making traditional mezcal. um, Every village has kind of a tradition and every family definitely has a tradition that's been passed down from father to son or, or daughter over the generations. That's the hand of a maker. That's their particular style. So even within the village of Chichicapa, you could have five different producers. They're going to have five different flavors that are specific to their family as far as their mezcal is concerned. Mm. So there's a lot of different things that come into play when you're talking about mezcal. Yeah. And that it's it's very uh, important to the economies of those small little villages, isn't it? It is, and it's getting more so. Yeah, you know, it's one of the benefits of the growing category. You know, there's some um, things that are really great about it, and there are things that are not great about it. Yeah. But one of the things that's really great about it is, um, you know, the the influx of economy. You know, and it's even if there's only four people in the village making mezcal, if um, the entire community ends up benefiting, right. you know, that, you know, the whole entire economy of the community ends up benefiting in those moments. So yeah. it's cool. Yeah. 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 Well, let's, let's go back to the beginning. We talk about the agave Uh-oh. and how, well, how long it takes <laughs> to grow. It's, it's fascinating to me that those plants are, are grow anywhere from seven to 30 years, as you said, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It all depends upon the variety of the agave. Um, you know, um, we're both drinking chichicapa, which is made from espadine, and espadine is one of the most prevalent plants for multiple reasons. One being that it has a pretty short maturation period, as far as agave is concerned. It only takes seven to eleven years to reach maturity. <laughs> is that um, all? <laughs> <laughs> that's all, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and I mean, it's really important to think about. You know, it, it means you have to think about the products on the shelf in a different way you know it's um when you're running a bar you can't think about your agave distillates in the same way that you take about think about your gin or vodka distillates and when you're considering price point it's like a a product that starts with a plant that's seven to eleven years yeah it's going to be more more expensive or it should be yeah they're doing it right and everybody's you know (laughs) everybody you gotta gotta be suspect of what you're drinking (laughs) 
exactly, <laughs> exactly. And that's something that that's another point of education that I focus on, you know, because we're so used to thinking about the bottom line and certain margins and all that kind of stuff. You have to think about, you know, as a consumer or as a bar owner, when you go into the liquor store or you're purchasing for your back bar, it's a different animal. Yeah. You can't have the same constraints on it that you have on other ones, you know. Right. So, you know, in order for all of the people in the supply chain to really be taken care of, you know, um, it needs to be coming to you at a higher price point, you know. Yeah. So you have Espadine on the end that's 7 to 11 years, and then you have types like Tapestate that can take up to 30 years. Not all of them are going to take 30 years, but it can, depending upon location um, and economic, not economic, but ecological factors and environmental factors. And are um, they always farmed or are they always grow wild or a combination? No. It's a it's a combination. So espadine, one of the reasons that you see it most frequently, besides it being the fact that it can, it has one of the shortest maturation periods, is that it can be farmed and and cultivated. Mm-hmm. Some other types of agave kind of lose their characters when you get into a, a situation of farming them, mm-hmm. and the best flavors come from those wild agave rather than the cultivated. And so that's why espadine is great if you're looking at an economy that's growing and a category that's growing because it's much easier to forecast. You can plant, you know, and consider what's happening. Whereas if you're talking about wild agave, there's the danger of over-harvesting and not having anything available in the years to come. Right. And so it's a, it's a very delicate balance and it's much harder to maintain when you're talking about wild plants than when you're talking about something that's cultivated. And I'm, I'm also kind of curious about just the logistics. I mean, here's... Maybe a family took care of this plant for 12 years or 15 years. That thing's valuable now, you know? What if somebody comes in the yeah. middle of the night and steals it? <laughs> it's an issue sometimes. It's a, it's definitely an issue sometimes. And, you know, there's all sorts of factors that you don't think about until you're there kind of looking at the landscape and being like, well, there's that type of study that's giant and it's huge. How do you know whose that is, yeah. you know? How do you decide who has access over a particular um plot of land and then also how do you protect that when it really is just wild and out there yeah um so completely different it's that's a whole nother conversation yeah, I, <laughs> I was just i was just curious about that because I, 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 I there was there was a lot of you know huge buzz about uh mezcal at, at tales this year and uh I, I went to the sustainable agave um seminar did you did you see that one i unfortunately i had a, another event at the same time yeah. so i couldn't uh, check that one but out it was really one. interesting but the i mean the produce Everybody involved in it is so passionate about it, you know. Yeah, it's um, just like any category. There's the spectrum of people that are involved with it. But I think that those of us who are really passionate about it are recognizing that we have to be extremely vocal um, because this category faces very specific challenges that other categories of spirits do not face. Yeah, there Um, are a lot of challenges, right? I mean, Bobby Hugel told me that, you know, there's pressure to grow these things faster. So there's, you know, artificial growing methods and things yep. that are being considered and the pressures are you know there's internal pressures when you think about sustainability of the plant you know um one being whether you're talking about chemical inputs but also that there's the it, because you're being challenged to make more quickly 
Um, people are not allowing the plants to actually grow to like true maturity. They're harvesting yeah. early um, in an attempt to try and get mezcal early. Um, there's some outside pressures from you know other communities that are trying to make sure the category isn't growing because they don't want competition in the marketplace, which is challenging mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, not only do we have issues of sustainability with agave, but also water sources and timber and all of these things. And just like any other distillate, um, when after you distill, you're going to have waste product. And depending upon how that's handled, it can be either really good for the people or really bad for the people. So these are challenges that, you know, I think so many categories um, face. But it's very different when you're talking about Oaxaca because mm-hmm. you don't have a, um, a lot of the same amenities. Um, and it's a little bit more challenging um, there than other places. And so... I think those of us who are passionate about it are tend to be very vocal because we want people to understand how mezcal is different. You right. can't think about it in the same way. And the only way people are going to know that is through education and us by us saying it over and over and over and over yeah. again. To more and more people who know nothing about it. You mentioned well, um, timber, it, it, but everything we're drinking here is unaged, yeah? Yeah, but when you but we roast in the earth over stones that have been heated by a hardwood fire. Okay. So you have oh, wood okay. that you're using to to start that fire and burn and propel the roast. And so the producers, our producers have had access to the same land for hundreds of years and they know how to do that in a sustainable fashion. But Mm. if you have new people coming in trying to make mezcal, they might not be as mindful of that as people, as families that have been on the same land for generations and understand the need to control and maintain the source of that. Right, right. It's a so, long, uh, yeah. It's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. But there's a exactly. lot of there's a there's a lot of new players in the in the game, isn't there? There is, there is, and and it's it's great, and it's also challenging. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. challenging. I um, my hope is that they're all doing their due diligence um, and really understanding how growth affects communities. Um, yeah, well, uh, there, know, there's so much at stake. I mean, uh, the, the the integrity of, of the product and the, and the people's mm-hmm. uh, lifestyle, their culture, and their and their livelihoods. For me, that's one of the most important things is that, you know, the Monero that we make, that family can trace back nine generations that have been making mezcal in the same way. Um, and when you have an outside force coming in and saying more, 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 we don't want that culture to be the expense. Yeah, you know? exactly. Um, the, yeah. the goal should be if you're coming in to work with a village, to be, you should be helping that village, not hurting it. And that means asking all of the right questions. It means being sure that you're protecting the things that are important to the families and the community of that particular village. Um, uh, it can't be about the bottom of a spreadsheet. You have to look at it as a much bigger picture yeah. when you're talking about this category. Yeah, I have I have partners. I have investors. Yeah. No, you yeah. that's, that's that's not what you want to it's hear in this case. Slope, you know, it's a, it's a very slippery slope. Yeah, it is. Um, and it, so it's much easier. It's not easier. It's definitely not easier. You can ask around Cooper. It's not easier. It's better, however, for the producers if you move slowly and you grow slowly um, to ensure that. It, you know, you're not harming anything along the way. Right, right. You know. Well, let's talk about the uh, taste profiles of these two these two bottles. Oh, I'd love yeah. to 
Uh, can you walk us through what we're what we're tasting here? Yeah, so um, we have chichicapa and monero, which is from the village of Santa Catarina Minas, and I love tasting these two side by side um, for a few reasons. Um, one, they're both made 100% from 100% espadine, so you're starting with the same raw material. There's no variation in the variety of agave that we're tasting, um, and the two villages um, are very close to one another, so there's not mm. a huge um, difference in, in, in the environment from the two villages. Um, however, the styles of the families are so different from one another that they, they are remarkably different from one another. So it really shows how diverse the category of mezcal can be. At Chichicapa, they're um, roasting in the earth um, in a stone-lined orno. Um, they're crushing with a horse-drawn molino, um, which in uh, tequila company would be a country would be called a tahona. Um, Open-air fermentation and wooden tinas or fermentation vats. And then they're using a small copper pot still. I'm mm. distilling twice the first time with all of the fibers and everything from the fermentation and the second without. Mm. So that's in Chichicapa. You go a short ways down the road to Santa Catarina Minas and there's a very, very different um, tradition. In the village of Santa Catarina Minas, they um, use uh, clay stills. Uh, with really? uh, uh, tubing that's made from something called carrizo, which is like bamboo. It looks like bamboo. Mm. So the clay stills were most prevalent in 2nd century BCE Japan. So most likely came down the western coast of Mexico to Oaxaca. Um, much older style and tradition of distilling, obviously. So in Santa Catarina Minas, they're roasting in the earth over... Um, in a an earthen orno like chichicapa but it's not stone lined it's just earth hmm. um they're crushing by hand they use heavy wooden bats in a stone trough to crush rather than the horse drawn molino um open air fermentation and similar wooden fermentation bats and then distilling twice and the clay stills is the um, yield less because they're using yes. uh yeah. yes um, and it's amazing. It takes for espadine, it takes approximately nine kilograms of espadine to, in a copper still to result in one liter of mezcal. Um, but in Monero, it can take up to 16 kilograms um, to use in the clay still because the mm. clay is actually porous, right. you know, yeah, um, yeah. and will actually absorb some of, of the ferment. And also the clay will um, crack. Oh, um, <laughs> which is a huge issue, and they can they can repair it a few times using a, mo a mixture of uh, flour and the honey from the roasted agave plant. But at a certain point in time, they have to to replace it. So when you go to meet Luis Carlos and Darden Lencho and in Santa Catarina Minas. They always have, you know, 10 or 12 backup clay ollas so that mm -hmm. as they're distilling, if they need to replace, they can. Mm. Um, but the texture is amazingly different. You know, not only are the flavors very different between yeah. the two, but the texture is different in the clay still of Monero as opposed to the copper pot still of Chichicapa. Do you agree? It's oh like, yes, definitely, definitely. I could, I can definitely uh, taste the influence of the copper or the the, the metal metallic uh, element to it. I find that um, to with the clay still, I always find a bit of a salinity. That's um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Sean Kenyon, who owns Williams and Graham in Denver, has a really great story of serving um, Monero to a guest one night in our clay copitas, like we're drinking out of here, and um, <laughs> the guest turned to him and said. 
I think my cup is melting <laughs> because of that salinity and that saltiness that she was tasting in the Monero. And he's like, well, you have a very good palate, but it's not, it's not your cup. It's the still itself. Wow. That's great. <laughs> so that there's a salinity and I always get a real roundness from the, the clay stills um, that I think my mind associates with butter so i always think about salted butter when i'm mm. tasting mm-hmm. the monero mm-hmm. um there is a, a differentiation between proof as well the chichicapa is 46 and the monero is 49 so we've jumped up in alcohol a little bit um and the acidity jumps up quite a bit as well when we go to santa catarina minas so you're probably if you when you taste the monero you're probably salivating a little bit you uh-huh, know uh-huh. um <laughs> and um i always say to bartenders i was like if you can get your guests to drink monero before they place their order for dinner they're gonna <laughs> order more food i promise you <laughs> a little selling tip for everybody out there um <laughs> but you know chichi Kappa has these beautiful flavors of the roast and then there's a, an herbaceousness that's kind of minty um it's a little bit of like baking chocolate in there but also some fruit notes um lately i've been getting some really interesting kind of sweet almond or marzipan notes when I taste chichicapa mm. and then Monero goes more about those bright acidic notes and you know I usually get some cooked vegetable as well when I'm when I'm talking about Monero and some baked fig um so they're two completely different animals um like opposite ends of the spectrum yeah, right, you know right. I always talk about because Mezcal is such a misunderstood category, and there's a lot of people who've had one experience and it's bad. They think that they don't like mezcal. And that's a really hard thing to overcome for people, to let them know that, like... One mezcal does not represent what mezcal is. Yeah. Mezcal is so much more than one spirit. Or your, or your memory from 15 years ago doesn't exactly. represent. <laughs> you know, so not you only meet did, so many people now who say, oh, I don't like gin. I'm like, but you like vodka. It's it's sort of like <laughs> yeah. kind of, it's well, sort of flavored it's vodka. Gin. Think about the difference between something like Tangeray, which is all about the juniper and yeah. citrus and botanicals, um, as opposed to some of the kind of new world styles of gin, like perhaps a Bar Hill, where it's, you know, it has this beautiful viscosity and it's not so much about the aromatics. It's the same thing, but people have one ex- bad experience and that's all they can focus on. So especially in the category of mezcal, because most of the time that first experience, that first bad experience was something industrially made that, you know, if they had had one sip or the entire bottle, they were probably still going to feel terrible the next day. Um, well, you know, when you I say industrial, are, are they actually using like neutral grain spirits to make it or? No, they're starting with agave, but there's usually chemicals added um, to um, speed up fermentation, things of that nature, um, to color it. Because um, like in some tequilas, there's the belief that the color is good, yeah. um, but it, it's not necessarily coming from time being spent in a barrel. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and all of those things don't do well with most of our body chemistries. And that's why we've had bad experiences with those spirits. Yeah, yeah. Well, going back to the production process, it seems like the time it takes to ferment is uh, a small portion when you're talking about, you know, whether it takes two weeks or, or two days or, or, you know, compared to how long it well, took that thing to grow. <laughs> and, and, that, and that's the 
that's an argument that I make all the time to people who are, are, are producing kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum from, from us and what we're doing in this traditional style. It's like you're, you're going to start with a raw material that could take up to 11 years to reach maturity if you're allowing it to reach maturity. And then you're worried about the difference between four days or three weeks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't add really? up. Really? You're going to cut corners now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It doesn't quite make sense for me. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. So Del Magwe is, uh, each one is from a different um, village, which is really cool and really interesting. Yeah. Yes and no. Oh, okay. <laughs> so um, all said and done now um, between like our core lineup and our Vino de Mezcals, we have about 16 different facings when they're all in the States at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um the original four villages, so Ron started in 1995, um, and he uh, brought in in 1995 Chichi Capa and San Luis del Rio, and in 1996 Santa Catarina Minas, which is what we call Minero, and um, Santo Domingo Alvarados. And all four of those are made from Espadina and made in four different villages. Um, and so for him, it was a way of paying homage to uh, the, the liquid art of Del Maguey, um and the art of the Palenqueros um, and the terroir of the particular village. So naming it after the village and really only working with one family in each of those villages was extremely important to him and still very important to him. As we've grown, especially with the Vino de Mezcal series, it's um, a lot of the same producers, but they're utilizing other types of agave. So, for example, from our producer of Monero and Santa Catarina Minas, we also um, have um, an Araucano. Um, we also have a Barril. And then they also make our Pachuga and our Iberico. Um, so they're starting to branch out and make other products for us um, using different types of agave and things of that nature. So. Mm-hmm. And we've introduced a, a few new villages since, since the onset in the mid-90s, um, a couple in a different region of Oaxaca. So they express different characteristics of terroir, which is really cool, and a different cultural background um, uh, as well. And we'll have a surprise coming out next February that I'm oh. really excited about. Oh, yeah. nice. <laughs> a little tease there. I like that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a wonderful product. And um, can you give us a uh, one or two uh, mezcal cocktails that you like to make? Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, so when I'm doing trainings, I always like to talk to the bartenders. And as they're doing the tasting, I make them think about, you know, who would you offer this particular mezcal to? Because Mm. there's always this experience across the bar where people come in and say, I want to try mezcal. I've never tried mezcal before. And that sounds easy, but it's really not easy because um, the first question should always be, well, first of all, you should advise the guests of two things. If the mezcal is being made traditionally, there's always going to be an element of the roast there. Um, and sometimes that's going to be the star of the show and sometimes it's going to be a supporting actor, but you're always going to taste, you should always be able to taste the fact that in the pinas have been re- roasted in the earth. And so that's always going to be there. Also, mezcal is going to be strong. Fuerte. Here we go. It's mm. it's a forty five to fifty five percent alcohol most of the time. And so you know, set everybody up for success there. But beyond that, the question should be: What, as a guest, do you normally like to drink? Do you drink gin? Because that will make me probably take you more towards our Monero or Santo Domingo Alvarados. But if you say you enjoy single malt scotch, I'm going to take you someplace else. And so. 
I think that's an important thing to think about because it'll help you guide help guide you as to like what to do with your particular mezcals. Um, because the easiest thing to do is start with a classic cocktail and then substitute this in as the mm. beast spirit. Mm. So, for example, one of my favorite things to drink is a Sazerac, but take out the rye whiskey and put chichicapa in it instead. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I drink a lot of those. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> when I'm traveling, it's, um, it's a great way because of the amazing people in our industry who have traveled around the country and trained so many bartenders in the basics and the history of cocktails, people like David Wondrich, you know, I'm happy to say it's very rare to go someplace where they don't know how to make a Sazerac. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah, um, yeah. So if I'm in a place where they understand the classics, but they don't necessarily under, understand mezcal, uh-huh. it's a very easy cocktail for me to order, to have them use this product. And it will teach them something about how they can use it. So if, if it works with a Sazerac, oh, maybe it will work with a Red Hook too, or, you know, other stirred whiskey cocktails that I enjoy, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's great. Same thing with those um, mezcals that I think are, are more for the gin drinkers of the world. You know, um, one of my favorite is a classic gin cocktail called the Puritan. And it's if an Alaska, it's um, kind of like if a, traditional martini and alaska had a baby because it's gin traditionally gin uh dry vermouth yellow chartreuse and orange bitters if you put in a mezcal that like santo domingo alboradas in that it's absolutely delicious um Mm. and so it's a great way to introduce those spirits and not hide them underneath a lot of other ingredients you know really let the spirits shine through but that's interesting that you bring that up because I, uh, you know, just going through the Del Magüe um, cocktail recipes on the on the website there, I noticed that most of those cocktails have like strong, you know, amaro or chartreuse or you know, like strong flavors. So is that because the, the mezcal can stand up to those other strong flavors? Or oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you know, you're thinking, you know, if uh, you know, if you used gin or you know, vodka or whatever, you know, in place with those other ingredients, you would not taste that gin at all (laughs) compared to the uh, Amaro or something, you know, or Campari. No, it's, I mean, the flavor profile of Mezcal is, is very robust, you know, and has so many dimensions to it. So it has this really strong backbone that can stand up to a lot of, um, modifying ingredients that can be challenging for other spirits. Um, that's one of the benefits and my, I I always like, like strong, boozy, complex cocktails, you know, (laughs) the hardest thing for me to, is to create a cocktail for a very large consumer event. I'm like, Oh my God, what do I do? (laughs) Uh, Appealing to the lowest common denominator, you mean? (laughs) Well, not even that, but it's just, I feel like, um, you know, I'm fortunate to have been introduced to this product so many years ago. If you consider even just your palate with food, like what did you like when you were three and what do you like now? (laughs) Like all of the things that you like now that you didn't like then. And it's the same with spirits. So how do you introduce a spirit to somebody who has a no, no, you know, background or basis for it when it's so strong and so complex? You need, you need to introduce it in a way that's familiar you know, and take some right. of the unknown variables out of the equation so that they feel comfortable with it. 
You know? Right, right. And 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 that that can be challenging. Yeah. But rewarding if you do it right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, thank you so much for your time. I don't want to keep you any longer. And th- this was <laughs> thank uh, you. this was great. I I really I really enjoyed it, uh, learning more about Miskel, and I, I just want to learn more and more and more and appreciate it. You know, I I, I love it. When I <laughs> now when I go to when I go to a cocktail bar I haven't been to before. I usually just kind of scan a mezcal. That's the one I want. (laughs) Well, we thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Missy. I hope to run into you again. Yes, I hope so as well. And uh, you're up in Boston, yeah? Yeah, I pay my rent in Boston. Um, <laughs> You're not there very often. But right? you'll be just as likely to see me someplace else. Right. There, so. <laughs> well, cheers. How, do you, how do you pronounce the name of this cup again? Uh, so this is our Copita. Copita. And the, uh, yep. And the cheers that you would say, the Zapotec cheers, is Tijibeu. It means to the collective health of the planet. Essentially, it's like whether we're talking... Birds, bees, animals, trees. Um, Stigi Bayo is to our collective health. Awesome. Um, How do you say it again? Stigi Bayo. Stigi Bayo. Yeah. And then the response would be Bakin, which essentially means serve yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will. Thank you. (laughs) Cheers, Misty. Thank you so much. Stigi Bayo. (laughs) (laughs) How awesome was that? Misty was a great guest. Thank you, Misty. Well, normally we do a toast at the end of our podcast, but I don't think I can improve on Misty's toast. So let's just do that one over again. Stigibayo. And then the response would be bakin, which essentially means serve yourself. Cheers, guys. My name is Brian Vincent Weber. Thanks for listening. Find the website at bartenderjourney.net. Subscribe on iTunes. Leave some ratings and stars. And follow me on Twitter at barkeeptips. You can find the Facebook page. Just search for Bartender Journey. We'll talk to you next time on the Bartender Journey Podcast.